passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome back, everybody, to Post Wrestling. It's John Pollock and Wei Ting. And joining us once again, who has been a, a consistent uh, voice to join us over this past year of the pandemic, he is a clinical care physician here in the province of Ontario, Dr. Alex Patel, returning to Post Wrestling. Uh, Dr. Patel, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. My first question, I just want to get to the heart of the matter. Do you have a publicist yet? No, no. You know a good one. I could use it. <laughs> uh, Alex is coming off of a, an appearance just earlier tonight on CTV News. And I thought we could maybe just start there of um, what specifically you were talking about, the kind of urgency that the province is facing now um, that you and your colleagues have actually uh, signed this letter to the government of Ontario. Sure. So, um, as you know, I'm a critical care physician in Ontario. And over the past few weeks, We've noticed um, an exponential rise in the number of critical care patients, in particular, the number of young patients that are coming in with severe uh, COVID infection. And we're starting to see our capacity uh, be exceeded. Um, we've sent numerous patients out to other hospitals. And for those of you not familiar with the Ontario area, we're talking about, uh, you know, two to 300 kilometers sometimes um, away. And it's becoming concerning because we're starting to see an increase in cases. We're starting to see more and more burnout from nurses in particular. So even if we have physical beds, they're not staffed. So we felt there was some urgency to get the message out that we need to reduce transmission uh, in this area. And uh, that was the consensus sort of, of most of the ICU physicians in our province who penned a letter uh, and sent it out earlier today. Um, the government of Ontario, for those of you that reside here, are aware that there were some restrictions put in place. Um, some of them are good ideas. Some of them, I think, uh, could have been better. But, uh, you know, we'll have to kind of wait and see. But I think the major message we wanted to get out was that uh, we need to be very, very concerned that with this new um, BOC or the, the B117 variant uh, and the fact that we haven't vaccinated that many people, really, that we could be in for a, a very, very rough next few weeks if we're not careful. You know, like um, I follow you on Twitter and and so um, I've seen you talk about these things uh, for quite a while now. And, you know, I I have to say maybe because like so much of my Twitter timeline is maybe American influence. But, 
it does seem like over the past several months, there has been a wave of perhaps optimism as it relates to the situation, perhaps because, you know, in certain places of the world, people are getting more vaccinated. It feels like it feels like it felt like I should say, you know, like there there was going to be there was more demand for opening up. Summer was approaching. But then, um, you know, the reality of the situation that I think you you are trying to present to the world is that we are very far from out of, being out of the woods with something like this. And in fact, we might be in the worst, like, uh, in terms of at least, you know, ICU, um, the worst case that we've had it. Uh, is, is that is that the case, Alex? Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at other parts of the world, the United States, you know, obviously dominates most of our media, but even Israel, um, they've vaccinated a large part of their population or they will very soon. And they're starting to open up and, and they've been OK. And I think uh, if you live in countries like Europe or, or in Canada where we haven't done that yet, um, there's a false sense, I think, of, of seeing what's going on there and thinking it applies to you. And when the second wave was dying down, um, most of us were hopeful that we would avoid a third wave and perhaps be able to vaccinate enough people. It's become apparent in the last couple of weeks that that isn't the case, that we're not going to be able to keep up um, with the vaccination supply enough to avoid the third wave. And we're definitely in the middle of a third wave by any uh, statistical measure that you look at. And what's different about this one is the particular variant. It's much more virulent, which means that it spreads faster, but it also causes much uh, more severe infection, especially in younger people. And younger people tend to use the ICU uh, more just because if you're older, sometimes, uh, you know, you make decisions around your, your care plan that don't involve going to the ICU and ventilators. But of course, if you're young, you probably are. And we can see the, the effects of that right now. So I think, you know, it is important to, to realize that it's good to take positives from the United States and Israel and other countries and know that when we get to that critical sort of vaccination threshold, things will hopefully be able to open up more safely. But we're not there yet. And for those of you that live in Ontario, we know that we, we you know, I don't even think Wei and uh, John would even be eligible right now, right? We're still, no. yeah, no. We're, we're still pretty high up in terms of the age. So if we're not getting there yet, um, you have to realize that until we do, and, and hopefully we will in the next couple of months, um, things might get worse uh, and looks like they are going to get worse before they start to get better. In terms of you know, like the, the seasonal change that, that we're going through right now, is that considered a good thing that people are typically going to be more outdoors in the coming months? Or is the warmer weather a cause for concern that people are going to be getting together more? Like, I feel like we're just going in circles in a lot of these conversations, but it just seems to be that you know, it, that's what this pandemic has been. It's been going in a lot of circles where we are now back, as you mentioned, the third wave of this. Yeah, so I think in some ways you're right. It's a positive. Uh, we know in the warmer weather that the respiratory droplets often uh, are a bit heavier, so they fall to the ground, so they don't aerosolize as much. We know outside is, is definitely much, much safer than inside. But we also know that it's going to lead to more gatherings, and whether those are, you know, indoor gatherings or whether those are, you know, large patio gatherings that you have in your backyard with a bunch of people and you end up, you know, uh, spreading it that way, there's going to be pluses and minuses. I mean, I definitely right. think there are outdoor activities that are safe you can do now, and, and there are things that you can do that are um, going to be low risk, but there are certainly high risk uh, activities as well that occur in the summer. So I think there's positives and negatives. I mean, on the whole, generally, the warmer weather is going to be better. We saw that in the first wave, and hopefully we'll see that again in the third wave. Um, this wave just, it, it spreads faster. So whereas before you might have a party and infect, maybe, you know, one person might infect one or two people, you're going to see more like three or four people uh, now. So you're going to see uh, a lot more cases with the same amount of basically uh, infected people. 
you know, um, just kind of going back to your your letter today, um, Alex, or, or the letter that you you took part in signing. Um, just to kind of maybe, uh, would you mind speaking a bit more, perhaps, about the current ICU situation, and in particular, how you know a crowded ICU would ultimately affect people seeking non COVID care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, the ICU situation right now is we have, I think, 430 beds or so that are occupied, which is among the highest. We were a little higher in wave one, but we're approaching it, and we're approaching it in a very fast manner. It's more regional. So certainly in areas around the GTA, the ICUs are starting to fill up with more and more COVID cases. So how this affects it is really in three ways. Number one is that if you come into a hospital and you need uh, critical care for COVID or for some other reason, Um, and there is no ICU bed, you're going to be in the emergency department, which is less than ideal. Uh, The nurses are not appropriately trained. Um, The nurses have to manage five or six patients. In the ICU, they manage usually one, maybe two at most. So you're not getting that sort of one-to-one care. The physician, you know, I I don't wait in the emergency department. I have to be in the ICU. So it's just not ideal. Nobody likes to manage a sick patient in the emergency department for any length of time. So we recognize that, and the province tries to move people around. But where we're moving to, you know, for instance, used to be, you know, 30 kilometers away. Now we're up to 100, 200 kilometers away. And it's just going to keep getting worse and worse as the uh, hospitals start to fill up. So that's kind of the first way it's going to affect people. The second is there are certain surgeries uh, and other procedures that need ICU after. So if you end up having heart surgery, for instance, to, because you need bypass surgery, you have a large cancer surgery or a surgery where there's going to be, uh, you know, a lot of um, potential for complications, they want to monitor you in the ICU after. They don't just want to put you on a hospital bed. And those surgeries get canceled because we don't have room to follow these patients after their operation. So these are all pushed back and they can't be done. And there's going to be, you know, morbidity and mortality associated with that if you're waiting for one of those procedures. And the last way is when you start to get overcrowded ICUs, you start to stretch nurses in particular quite thin. So ideally, they'd be managing one patient that's really sick. You start to stretch them out. They're going to start to, you know, have to manage two patients. You're going to start to have untrained nurses. They're going to start pulling nurses from various areas. We're going to start pulling physicians that are not trained in critical care. And that means that even patients that are already in the ICU now are not going to be getting, um, you know, are going to be getting, frankly, suboptimal care compared to what they were receiving. So those are some of the ways in which when you start to crowd ICUs, you start to see kind of a trickle down effect to many different things. What's been your assessment of the the vaccination rollout in 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 the U.S. and how like obviously it's been accelerated significantly in, in the last couple of months? But if you could just give us kind of a like a an overview of just how far ahead they are than than Canada is right now is is this something like is it stunning to the effect that the U.S. has been able to uh, what they've been able to do the last three to four months? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, I mean, I, I would say that they've done, you know, an amazing job of getting the vaccine and everything. Uh, last numbers were something like 25 to 30% of their population is already vaccinated. They've opened it up to almost everybody. So in New York, you can get vaccinated, I think, if you're 30 or, or over. So, I mean, they've definitely rolled it out. Um, anecdotally, most of my colleagues and, and friends and family in the U.S. have all been offered the vaccine. So, yeah, they've done a great job. They've ramped it up. They've certainly, uh, in the last couple of months, I think especially since Biden took off, has really made it a point to push the vaccine. And they've done a great job of getting it out. And, and you know, it looks like they're on target to offer the vaccine to almost everybody in the next couple of months. Um, we've been much slower in, in Canada for a number of reasons. Our vaccine supply hasn't quite been there. The rollout was a bit slower. So, you know, we're not approaching those numbers at all. And uh, it's going to be a while before we hopefully catch up. Is there, to me, that also does come with like a certain level of caution, like to, to Way's point, like it feels 
like we we can directly tie this to like like what is coming up over the next month just in the industries we cover where we are seeing you know a a big wrestlemania uh, happening we're going to see indoor full capacity ufc events i mean like where from your point of view and like following like the these promotions right now like is this like certainly an outdoor event you would think is you know there's going to be some risk involved there but not to the extent of indoors but i mean is that is that well placed um pessimism on on my part that, about what what's going to be happening and that's going to extend to probably a lot of other outlets and concerts and many other entertainment outlets that are going to be watching events like the UFC and seeing how successful they are with this yeah, I think it's a bit premature. I mean, uh, they've done a good job vaccinating, but I mean, like I said, the numbers were 25, 30%, something like that. I mean, they change every day, but like they're not close to 50% yet. And uh, most of the people that are, attend these events are, are younger generally, or, or you know, it's going to skew. You're not going to get as many 80-year-olds attending. And those were the, you know, predominant ones that were vaccinated early. So I still think it's a bit early. Uh, you know, when you go to these events, if you have the vaccine and you've been you know, a couple of weeks after your 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 full vaccination, uh, you know, you're probably okay. I mean, you're probably pretty low risk to contract the virus yourself. So, you know, in that case, yeah, I can see that. Although I would imagine that that's not going to be the majority of people that are there. There's going to be a lot that are not vaccinated and that perhaps live with people that have health issues. And now we've been seeing young, healthy people get it. And we know that the, the variant, the B117, is circulating in, uh, even in the U.S. and here and everywhere. So, so, you know, I do think it's a bit premature. I think if you're wanting to attend these events and you're not vaccinated, um, I think you should, you know, pause and think about whether this is something you really, really need to do right now, or whether you're better off waiting, you know, two or three months by the time you have the vaccine shots and then going out and enjoying it. Um, you know, because I, I think certainly in the U.S. they're almost there, but not quite. And just to clarify, I think for many people, because I, I really do wonder how many people are even aware of this, but. Even if you are vaccinated, you are still capable of spreading, correct? Yeah, I mean, we don't know the exact numbers, but we believe like the Pfizer vaccine is the one we have the most data on. And we believe that the rate of acquiring any form of COVID, you're probably protected somewhere in the order of about 90%. So, you know, there is a 10% chance you could pick it up and then potentially spread it. It's likely going to be very low. It's difficult to study spread right off the bat. It's not as easy because you'd have to kind of, follow people and then follow people around them to get an idea of they're spreading. So the best marker we have is whether the person ever acquires the infection at all. You never acquire it, you know, you're not going to really spread it. So we do know that, you know, the amount of people that actually acquire it and are symptomatic is quite low. And the number that ever acquire it is, is probably, you know, somewhere around 10%. So by and large, you're going to be protected, we think. Uh, you know, we don't have the full data on that. It's kind of extrapolated just from the rate of infection, but that's the best we have right now. Well, that's good news. But some of the... Uh, I was just going to ask about like some of the data you've been able to assess now that we have a year to look at this of people that have been, you know, generally isolating, being away from others. Like I was just thinking about this the other day that in this last year, I have not so much as had a cough and I, I'm questioning like the last year, what impact it has had just on like general health for, for people just like common like cold flu su su such like that like i have to imagine that this has been pretty drastic to see statistics of what this has had on the society as a whole oh yeah for sure i mean generally at this point we run our icus fairly full i mean not as full as we are right now but we're fairly full many of influenza or the flu or other respiratory diseases i, I don't think i've had a single case of flu this year 
Um, I don't think we've had any other respiratory disease other than COVID and and maybe some non-COVID and bacterial pneumonias, but certainly we've not seen influenza and, you know, we swab people for influenza. Um, Anecdotally, I I have a son that's eight, you know, I think he's about 14 months now. He's not had any illness. Like, you know, last year he hasn't been sick and that's not quite normal. Um, You know, so I do think a lot of these seasonal respiratory viruses, because of what we've done, masking, uh, you know, social distancing, in some cases, social isolation, have uh, drastically reduced these, uh, you know, and we've seen that. So, yeah, it's had a positive effect in terms of some of those other things that normally circulate at this time uh, of the season. Can I just say, I'm keeping the mask. I'm I'm keeping this mask for the rest. I like the mask a lot. I just, uh, for, for someone, when I'm going out, I, I'm wearing this mask forever. I'm totally down with the mask. I, I don't get the, like, even like the uncomfortableness doesn't exist for me at all. It's like, I'm not getting sick. I'm, I'm signing up for the rest of my life with this damn mask. You guys need the post masks. That, we're, we should be on that. We definitely should be on that. How effective um, are current vaccines against these new variants? Pretty effective. There was just a, a thing that came out today with Pfizer. I mean, these are all kind of in vitro, but against the South African variant, it was it was effective against the UK variant. It's been effective. So we do think it's effective. I mean, even you have to understand for a vaccine to be deemed effective, if it neutralizes about 50 percent, we say it's effective. So you don't need numbers of 90 or so to prevent infection. Um, mm. Typically, you know, in vitro, they're they're pretty effective. Clinically, the the thing that we're most concerned about isn't so much whether you ever acquire COVID, it's whether you ever get sick from COVID, right? Whether you ever end up sick enough to be hospitalized. Um, because that's, you know, kind of the point of the influenza vaccine. I mean, you can get the vaccine and still get the flu, but you don't get sick enough to get in the hospital. And that's typically good enough. Like if, if we said, you know, you may get COVID, but you may have the sniffles for a couple of days, we're not going to be going through all of this for that. So uh, that's been almost 100% in all studies across all of the different vaccines. Uh, and, you know, we are having the spread of variants in various things in in various countries and we're still not seeing people you know that are fully vaccinated come in we are seeing impartial vaccines i don't want to make the point that uh, i have seen patients that have come in you know after one dose of vaccine within a window of about seven to ten days which is not typically where we see full immunity come in and get you know sick from covid so uh, you do have to wait the required kind of two weeks uh, preferably after your second dose uh, to have sort of what we call a robust immune response and then you'd fit into to what we're seeing with most of the trials but yeah we haven't seen uh, breakthroughs uh, of any of them, and most of them in vitro at least seem effective enough to prevent infection. So, so again, um, you know, uh, so how long after one shot can people start to see some effect? Typically, we say two weeks. I mean, it depends on age. So, if you're younger, under fifty, uh, under sixty, even, uh, you're going to be pretty good. Your immunity levels are likely ninety percent or above, uh, based on just like taking blood samples from people and monitoring them. Um, certain people that don't get a robust immune response are immunocompromised people. They may not. People that have, uh, you know, certain cancers or on chemotherapy, they do not. Uh, and older people, they do not. So we're doing our best. I think the Ontario government has moved towards relaxing uh, and providing the second dose in a more timely manner to some of the cancer patients and some of the chemotherapy. Older patients, we still haven't done that. I would like to see that done because we do know if you start to exceed, you know, 75, 80, you can only have maybe a 50% uh, kind of immune response after one dose. But for the younger people, by and large, two weeks after your first dose, you'll have a pretty uh, robust antibody response. And how far ahead, like when it comes to vaccinations for children, how far down the the trial stage are we? Is that something that is in like ways away or is it something that 
could be something realistic by the end of this year, for instance? Well, kids 12 to 15 were just released by the Pfizer study, and it was 100% effective. So um, likely 12 to 15 will be um, approved. They're starting uh, trials as, low, as young as six months now. Wow. So uh, I would imagine, yeah, like, I mean, that's not going to be the priority, but yeah, probably by the end of the year, I mean, 12 to 15 should be approved uh, first, and then we'll probably get 12 and under uh, approved shortly thereafter uh, by the end of the year, I would think. You know, this week we've had some, I would say, uh, confusing news regarding the AstraZeneca vaccine with uh, some provinces not administering to people under 55. Can you just clarify some of that confusion for us? Yeah, sure. So um, the AstraZeneca vaccine has basically a a link with um, blood clots that they're investigating. The rate of blood clots is not high. So it is not high in in some respects. It's uh, as low or lower than the risk in the general population. But in particular, in women under the age of 55, uh, they noticed that there was more blood clots occurring in that group. Now, you have to understand women under 55 are at higher risk of blood clots anyway because of uh, the risk of the oral contraceptive pill. So the oral contraceptive pill uh, for women that, that listen know that your physician should be asking you uh, and warning you about the risk of blood clots, especially if you smoke. So um, that is probably tied into the link somehow, we believe. Uh, we don't know for sure. But yeah, women under 55, um, they noticed uh, a few cases of blood clots. The rate was not higher necessarily than women anyway, but it was more than it was occurring in other groups. So to be safe, they've kind of said, okay, we shouldn't vaccinate under 55. To be fair, it's probably isolated to women under 55. And in particular, those are risk of blood clots. If you're on the oral contraceptive pill or smoke um, are probably the ones that are going to end up being uh, the ones ultimately that they end up uh, thinking are the highest risk. But, you know, they're taking this prophylactic step. Other countries have done it all over the place in the UK, for instance, and other countries, and they you know, haven't seen large numbers. So we're not talking about something that's very common at all, but, you know, they're going to err on the side of caution. You know, I, I wish like everything you just said comes with these sort of announcements, or at least the way we receive these announcements through a Twitter, you know, a trend headline or something like that, because there's so much information that you just gave me there that I would have had no idea of if I just read the headline. And it's really unfortunate to me because like somebody like my mother who like, you know, might be skeptical about like, you know, taking a certain brand of vaccine. She'll just think, oh, AstraZeneca, this is this is terrible. Like I've had somebody like, you know, uh, like a, a, an older you know family friend, like uh, like really, really like show their preferences for the other ones. And when they heard that their spouse was getting the AstraZeneca, they somehow felt terrible for them. I'm like, there's so much misinformation out there. Um, so, you know, uh, what, 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 what are some other kind of like things that you want to clear up right now that you've been getting a lot of uh, questions about Alex? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's the first, I think, uh, you know, you should try and get the first vaccine that you can. I mean, if you are a woman that's younger and on the oral contraceptive pill, I mean, uh, you know, or you have a risk of blood clots that, that is higher than the general population. Yeah. I mean, uh, that, that's fine. I, I would encourage you to perhaps not, uh, get the AstraZeneca, but apart from that, I think everyone else should be getting the first one that they can. And the other myth, I think, was, you know, the time to vaccination. I think people do need to to wait it out and see. Um, a lot of people were also saying, oh, you know, is the uh, vaccine when you get it, um, you know, do you get sick thereafter? And, and often with the first dose, you don't. The second dose, yes, you can have a little bit of a, um, a mild illness with uh, fever and, and sort of myalgias and things like that. Uh, a lot of people have also been questioning a little bit more about whether uh, COVID, uh, you know, has um, more long-term effects or not. And we're certainly seeing that more and more and more that uh, people that have COVID 
uh, can come back months uh, later and, and have effects, you know, on their heart. And a lot of times if they're sick, they can have a, a lot of lingering effects. So uh, it's not necessarily without ongoing morbidity. I mean, everyone focuses on the mortality number, but there's a lot of people that are uh, affected by COVID long-term. And uh, one of the things that's often overlooked is the risk of blood clots. When you mentioned the AstraZeneca and the blood clots, COVID-19 carries a much higher risk of blood clots, much, much higher than anything linked to AstraZeneca. And we routinely, for patients that are admitted with COVID, uh, on everybody send screening for blood clots. We send blood tests that identify those that are blood clots. That's how common it is. And if we think you might have it, we end up doing, uh, you know, CT scans to look for it. So, you know, in, in this hype about getting caught up on blood clots uh, and all of this, please, you know, remember that the disease itself is a much higher risk of blood clots and other things than uh, any vaccine or treatment that you're going to receive. Maybe CTV should just have you on like every week or you could be right next to Doug Ford and then he could just <laughs> pass it over to you and then you can reassure the the people of this province and this country and speak uh, speak to people in regular language. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's quite a few of my colleagues are also on the news. Uh, you know, I think we're trying to, to get the message out there. Sometimes these things are done, uh, you know, very sort of iron fisted and, you know, it, they're done. I get it to try and protect people and, and prevent anything, but uh, a lot of times you do need to kind of look at the disease, go through the numbers, look at the literature, kind of know the disease process uh, to make the best decisions as opposed to just, you know, knee jerk reactions to things. Do, do you expect Alex that uh, there will be sort of a yearly vaccination for something like this? Like, like we have with the influenza. Yeah, it's possible with the mutations, right? So we, we're already seeing, you know, a, a handful of mutations. If it continues to mutate, and kind of work its way around the current vaccines. I think we'll see booster shots come into play where you'll get an updated booster uh, that'll protect you against some of the newer variants. So I, I do think that is likely to be in, uh, something that we'll see. Whether it continues indefinitely, like influenza kind of just depends on whether the virus uh, eventually dies out or whether it keeps circulating because the mutations are enough to, to keep some low level spread around. Um, that remains to be seen. But yeah, I do think we're going to see boosters in our in our future at some point. Wait, we should probably get into the uh, questions if you've got them all compiled. Yeah, sure. Uh, so this is just a number of uh, questions from our forum. And uh, the first one, this person asks, what are your thoughts on Canada waiting four months to give people their second shot? I'd gotten to the point of feeling more comfortable about getting the vaccine, but now I'm not so sure. Yeah. So as I said earlier, there's certain people that I do not advocate that in. Um, first of all, the reason they're doing that is because uh, they want to get more shots into arms, right? So rather than give it to, you know, 10,000 people, they'd rather give it to 20,000 people because that'll prevent uh, more people from getting sick. The downside is that certain people don't develop a robust immune response to it after one dose. And those are, you know, the elderly and those that are immunocompromised, those that perhaps have certain types of cancers or chemotherapy. If you're one of the people in the latter group where you have cancer chemotherapy, they just updated the guidelines. I'd encourage you to speak to your physician and see whether you're one of the ones that will qualify. I had a, a friend of mine who, who, you know, I've been talking to and I was able to to kind of help him get get the vaccine sooner because there are ways uh, around it uh, if you qualify in that regard. Older people were working on, unfortunately, uh, you know, there hasn't been much movement. But yeah, in those people, there will certainly be uh, an issue with for uh, waiting too long, uh, perhaps. For everyone else, uh, especially those that are, you know, 60 or under, uh, probably not. Probably the immune levels will be okay. Uh, and, you know, the second booster, when you get it, uh, will be sufficient uh, even at four months. 
Second question, how much do you personally pay attention to headlines versus medical journals and data-backed studies when it comes to variants and vaccine effectiveness? I find myself completely confused by conflicting headlines and stories and can only imagine the impact it has on parts of the population more skeptical than I. Where do you recommend turning for good information about variants and vaccine effectiveness against them, as well as in general? Yeah, so I mean, a lot of times newspaper headlines are are important because that's how you you know kind of learn about these things. But it's important to you know for us in the medical community, we obviously wait for the the journal articles to come out, right? Because we'll read ninety five percent effective. We want to read the journal articles to make sure that the you know the groups were even, that all the kind of things that we use in evidence based medicine were applied. For somebody who isn't as versed to that, it may be tricky. Um, you know, when you read a newspaper headline, exactly what to to make of it. Um, you know, oftentimes they they will, if they link to the medical article, um, you know, and oftentimes it is, you know, the New England Journal of Medicine or JAMA, those are going to be more uh, reliable. Uh, and, you know, if you want to read the article, you can. If you find it difficult, you know, you can follow me on Twitter. There are other physicians on there that often will go through it uh, on Twitter. Um, uh, and I often link to some of those when they come out. Um, that's probably the best way. I, I would encourage you to speak to your doctor. That's probably, you know, if you don't have anyone else uh, or a trusted physician that you know, uh, you know, speak to your family doctor. Uh, you know, most of them are going to be very up to date. And, and if they're not, they'll read it and, and kind of get back to you because it, it is important not just to read the newspaper article, but also to, to read the actual medical literature. I mean, none of us would recommend something we just write off a news article. We always, uh, I always read, and so do all my colleagues, uh, always read the actual article in the raw text to, get an idea of exactly what happened. What are your thoughts on the COVID zero strategy? And would it have been more effective for Canada considering we're a year into the virus and have made such little overall progress? Yeah, so the COVID zero strategy is something that I think works better in certain areas where they're able to um, essentially stamp it out uh, because they lack immigration. They're often more of an island. So Australia, New Zealand, Taiwan. Can, those can, can you explain what that what COVID zero is? Yeah, so it's aiming for zero COVID, right? So the idea is anytime you have any COVID, they they lock down and they they try and prevent it. Like Brisbane did that recently. Uh, you know, that's kind of the idea behind COVID zero is that you try and uh, prevent any spread of the virus. You're aiming for zero transmission of the virus, and you're trying to see whether you ever reach that that point. Like um, a stricter lockdown. Correct. Basically. Yeah. So very strict lockdowns. You know, uh, people talked about you know going to that. Basically, it's a short period of very stringent lockdown, travel bans very limited contact, staying at home, and basically you try and get everything down uh, to zero. And once you reduce it, then, you know, you try and trace everything. It's very difficult in a larger country like Canada and the U.S. to do something like that because there's always people coming across the border. There's always going to be some level of transmission. So we, we use something more analogous to the hammer and dance that you may have heard, which is um, – We've learned to kind of live with low levels of COVID and then hammer out whenever we have uh, surges. Uh, in COVID, recognizing that probably the only way we're going to approach COVID zero is not through lockdowns, but more practically through vaccination. And our last audience question says, uh, do we have any data on how long immunity lasts? Is there a way to test for a person's immunity after they've received the vaccine? And do people who participate, who have participated in the vaccine trials still have immunity? Yeah, so I mean, there are uh, studies running on healthcare workers. I'm, uh, I'll share my results. I had uh, a test done uh, to check my antibody levels about uh, two months after my vaccine, and they were positive. So I did have antibodies, as was everybody that I, I went to work with. Pfizer recently released data six months out that says that there is still immunity six months out from having received the uh, the vaccine. 
So we do know up until six months. Uh, I mean, it's going to come in little batches of three months as they wait and follow the data. You know, it's not immediate. They've got to get the results compiled and have them peer reviewed and everything. And, and these are, I think, still the non-peer reviewed. But uh, for the preliminary, it looked like six months later that they've tested people that still have antibody response. You know, uh, and, and just the last question for me, if you if you guys don't mind. Uh, so today, uh, of course, you know, the Ontario government announced uh, another four-week lockdown. Uh, we are currently today uh, have over 2,500 cases, new cases of COVID-19. What, what sort of trends are you looking for before you think it'll be safe to reopen to even, you know, patio dining like we had last year? Yeah, so one of the problems is that uh, COVID is, uh, especially in Ontario, is a very regional disease. So we know that certain areas, Toronto, Peel, York Region, uh, Hamilton, are much more affected. Uh, Toronto and Peel were already in most of a lockdown. So I, I don't know, like we're moving everyone back. And in some respects, yes, it's good. But in other respects, Toronto and Peel are still going to allow some form of retail dining, retail shopping. They're still going to allow schools. So I don't know whether they're going to bring down the levels in Toronto and Peel. We know that's what drives it. One of the biggest problems, and you know, I, I don't want to get political here, is that we need to look out for essential workers. So there's people that need to work in these areas, that work in factories, that work these kind of jobs, and they don't have paid sick leave. So a lot of times when they get sick, they, they come to work. And this virus will just spread like wildfire with the variants if you do that. Look at the Amazon plant, for instance, in Brampton. Mm -hmm. This is what happens. So without these measures uh, like paid sick leave or letting people have time off work to get the vaccine, especially essential workers and targeting them, uh, I don't know whether we're going to bring the levels down tremendously. Um, you know, hopefully at some point they start prioritizing people that still have to work and still go to work and, and let them stay home when they're sick and try and get them vaccinated. But, you know, overall, I, I anticipate that we'll see some effect. You know, it takes, you know, uh, about 10 days or so for the lockdown effects to, to work. Um, we'll probably see some levels drop in and around areas that were more uh, open. But in Toronto and Peel, I, I don't think the levels would drop drastically just because they were already in a similar sort of lockdown. Uh, so they may kind of stay where they are or even go up. It's it's kind of interesting that, you know, given, you know, we're facing this this four week lockdown coming up and yet we're, you know, covering the fact that, you know, the UFC is going to run 15,000 yeah. people in a couple of weeks. And last week, you know, when the tickets went on sale and they immediately sold out the arena in Jacksonville, you know, people are pointing out the language that those buying tickets have to agree to like uh, essentially a waiver of what you're expecting and everyone's stunned by this. And I'm thinking like, this is going to be boilerplate for any kind of live events for the new world moving forward. I mean that like, to me, it's to me, I just don't sense like COVID is going to have this end date. It's going to be something that in some form or fashion is going to very much be part of our lives. Even if it's having to go back for va vaccinations every year, like, to me, this is something that is going to be part of like how the world operates uh, like post COVID. Yeah. I mean, like if you look at influenza, it has been right. Like ever since influenza in the 1900s, it's, it's been a part of uh, our lives. It, it comes around in the winter. We get flu shots. We get people that get sick from it. COVID could very well, I, I wouldn't disagree with you. I mean, we've already seen variants. There likely will be variants that get around the vaccine. There likely will be people that remain unvaccinated um, that'll continue to transmit it. So yeah, it probably will be like that. I mean, I saw some of those waivers. I think one of them said uh, some waiver of death or something. Like, I mean, I don't, yeah. know, I don't know how legal those are, but um, yeah, it's extreme, right? I don't, I don't know if I would go to an event if <laughs> I had to sign a waiver of death, but um, yeah. Um, I, I'm just wondering, like, even like a year from now, like to go, like what onus is going to be on like promoters of any kind of live events? Like what, what risk are you assuming as the consumer 
to I mean to go watch movies like it's just I don't know this is all like stuff that is kind of trivial in the grand scheme of things but it is interesting to look at what the what the world will look at at a point where things are going to be fully operational. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine, you know, you're never going to be able to say, you know, even if you're fully vaccinated, that you can go to these events and not contract COVID because if there are, uh, you know, first of all, there's certain people that get it despite being vaccinated and there could easily be variants that are coming up that will work around the vaccine a little bit. So, yeah, I would agree with you. I think we're going to be looking at, at disclaimers like this and we're going to be looking at people that go to movies or go to events. They're going to have to accept some risk uh, of uh, COVID infection. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Dr. Patel, as always, um, I, I think you just, you know, provide a, a great resource for people who just might be wrestling fans. But uh, it, this is something that obviously affects everybody. So hopefully people who listen to this are able to spread some of your information to other people who might be um, maybe just as clueless as maybe, you know, we were at the start of this conversation. So thank you for your time. No problem. I'm happy to come on anytime. And, you know, if people have questions, uh, feel free to send them to me or ask on the forum or however you want. And, uh, you know, wishing everyone the best. I mean, um, you know, unfortunately, we didn't want to be here in the third wave. But if you live in Ontario, you are. And I'm hoping that, you know, after the lockdown, if we're able to ramp up the vaccines, um, hopefully we don't have a fourth wave. Well, uh, we we always appreciate the time. Uh, You can follow him uh, at Dr. Alex Patel. P-A-T-E-L on Twitter. Of course, he's uh, very responsive on the forum as well if you have questions. And at this point, I think we have now concluded the latest edition of the Dr. Alex Patel Chronicles here at Post Wrestling. (laughs) We're always grateful for the the time. And uh, based on trends, I'm sure we will be needing to talk to you in in the very near future at some point. Yeah, unfortunately, it seems that way. Well, always happy to be on, but hopefully better circumstances.